Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this month's episode number 42 on acute abdominal pain, we have with us Dr. Brian Steinhardt and Dr. David Dushensky. Dr. Steinhardt is an emergency physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He's certified in emergency medicine by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and the American Board of Emergency Medicine. He's a delegate for the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada as well as the American Heart Association, and he's on the CME Committee at the University of Toronto Divisions of Emergency Medicine. Dr. David Dushensky is an emergency physician at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, where he's the Deputy Director and Quality Assurance Coordinator. He's a lecturer at the University of Toronto and has won multiple postgraduate teaching awards. Abdominal pain is the single most common reason for a visit to the ED. While many of these patients will be discharged with a diagnosis of undifferentiated abdominal pain, about 10% will require surgery at that visit. There's been an ever-increasing trend of relying on imaging to diagnose the acute abdomen, with perhaps a parallel trend towards losing clinical skills in the process, it seems at least to me. But remember that with a really good history, physical, and interpretation of basic lab tests, we should be able to clinch the diagnosis almost every time. Sometimes imaging can even be misleading with false positives and false negatives, not to mention the radiation exposure and increased length of stay. Now don't get me wrong, CT and ultrasound technology has revolutionized the way we practice medicine and has mostly had a positive impact on patient care. But just like any tool, we need to know the limitations of these tests. With the combined clinical experience of Dr. Steinhardt and Dr. Dushensky of about 55 years, we're going to try to impart to you the key pearls and pitfalls in the clinical diagnosis of some deadly causes of acute abdomen that are difficult to pick up early on and will help improve your pretest probability determination for some of the common diagnoses like appendicitis and diverticulitis so that you can spare some patients some radiation and pick up subtle cases. We'll elucidate the true value of imaging in some of the most deadly and common acute abdomen diagnoses and will present some different approaches with the pros and cons of each to the management of appendicitis and diverticulitis. We'll also be talking about the challenges of figuring out the post-op abdominal pain patient. And finally, we'll pose the question, is there any role for abdominal x-rays in the ED? Dr. Steinhardt, this is your fourth time on emergency medicine cases. Yeah, I just love the coffee here, Anton. What could I say? (laughs) We did episode four was CHF with Eric Latovsky, episode on coma on the found down patient with David Carr, right? With Walter Himmel, we did an episode on low back pain disasters. Dave, this is your second time on. We did a first trimester bleeding, right? That's right. Did that one with uh, Ross Claybo. With Ross Claybo. Great. Happy to be back. Awesome. All right, let's go into the first case here. The first one is a 64-year-old woman with a past medical history of diabetes and severe peripheral vascular disease. She comes in with a four-day history of vague abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. That day, she noticed blood in her stool, which prompted her to come in. She denied hematemesis, fever, or chills. She had bilateral leg amputations and had suffered three MIs, the last one a year prior. 
On review of the old chart, in addition to diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, and the MIs, she also suffered from CHF, mitral regurgitation, and atrial fibrillation. She was on digoxin, Lasix, Ramipril, Bisoprolol, Insulin, and Coumadin. On exam, her vitals were normal except for a temp of 38 degrees. Abdominal exam revealed a distended abdomen with hypoactive bowel sounds and mild tenderness diffusely. Well, it's obviously just gastro. I think she can probably go home, right? <laughs> and, t- and tell her to stop smoking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so in terms of, of the differential for this patient, uh, given her strong history of vasculopathy and the atrial fibrillation, and even though she's on Coumadin, we don't know if she's really been therapeutic, you've got to think about vascular causes for this, and mesenteric ischemia would certainly be at the top of the differential in, in this patient. Now, she could have other bowel pathology that would give her a bleeding parectum uh, as well. You know, she could just have a, a significant GI bleed. She's on Coumadin. Uh, she could be upper, it could be diverticular bleed as well. Uh, she could have uh, an infectious cause in, in terms of an infectious colitis. Uh, we don't really know. Maybe she's been on antibiotics recently. She could be at risk for C. diff or even uh, something like toxic megacolon. So th- there is a fairly broad differential here, but most of the diagnoses are, are potentially serious and are really going to require some further investigation to sort them out. So this patient's blood work came back It showed a white count of 15, a lactate of 4.2, and a creatinine of 205, with the rest being normal. She went on to have abdominal CT, which showed bowel wall thickening and slight dilatation with possible intramural air. The patient was presumed to have mesenteric ischemia and was started on broad-spectrum antibiotics and referred to surgery, who didn't sound especially eager to take the patient to the OR considering her multiple comorbidities and the Coumadin. Dr. Dushensky, can you give us some background on how serious of a disease mesenteric ischemia is, how good or bad we are at diagnosing it, and how we can reduce the high rate of mortality? So mesenteric ischemia is a bad disease. It's one of the more serious uh, abdominal diagnoses that we'll make in the emergency department. It is really primarily a disease of older people. The median age that the diagnosis is made in is probably around 70, which of course makes it more serious because those people are the ones who have more comorbidities as well. The mortality rate overall is really quite high. It's around 70% with estimates in the literature ranging from about 59 to 93% once you've actually made the diagnosis. And unfortunately, we're not particularly good at making the diagnosis at the initial presentation. And there's evidence in the literature that shows that it's actually considered as a diagnosis only about a third of the time when that is the ultimate diagnosis. It's really key in terms of reducing the mortality that the diagnosis is made fairly early because that's the most important factor in reducing the mortality. There's evidence in the literature that shows that uh, if you can make the diagnosis and intervene in a period of less than 12 hours from the time of the symptom onset, that bowel viability is very high, approaching even 100%. 
On the other hand, if you make the diagnosis and you intervene in the 12 to 24 hour range, bowel viability drops to around 50%. And if you're greater than 24 hours, bowel viability is down to almost 18%. So this is something there where it certainly is a, a time sensitive diagnosis, not quite in the same terms as a, a STEMI or a stroke, but you got to make the diagnosis quickly and intervene if you're going to avoid the serious uh, morbidity and mortality associated with it. So mesenteric ischemia carries a high mortality of 60 to 80%. It's a really tough diagnosis to make, and it's missed on the first visit about a third of the time. Yet the earlier you diagnose it, the more likely you are to save a life. Now we're going to hear about how you might be able to diagnose it early on. Mesenteric ischemia, we call it a diagnosis. We call it a disease, but it's actually four different diseases. It's mesenteric arterial emboli, mesenteric arterial thrombosis, non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia, and mesenteric venous thrombosis. Dr. Dushansky, could you just review for us these four different diagnoses that make up all of mesenteric ischemia? Sure. So you're right. Mesenteric ischemia really isn't one thing. It's a collection of things that can affect the abdominal circulation, specifically the celiac axis, the SMA, and the IMA. And it's important, I think, in understanding this to to realize that the bowel does have collateral circulation. And so that's why it doesn't infarct and die immediately like brain tissue or a cardiac muscle when we get an interruption of the circulation there. And the way in which the blood flow is reduced has effects on the presentation and the morbidity and the mortality associated with it. And that's where you sort of break it down into these different categories. So the first one is the mesenteric arterial emboli. This is the biggest group. It accounts for about 50% of the cases. And classically, this comes from a cardiac source. These are the patients who usually have the sudden onset of abdominal pain. They may develop diarrhea then that eventually becomes bloody once the gut dies. It's got a high mortality rate, up to about 70% actually. The second group is the arterial thrombosis group. This is much less common. It accounts for only about 10 to 20% of the cases, and it's caused by arteriosclerosis within the abdominal vasculature and thrombosis. And so it's similar in some ways to a presentation of cardiac ischemia where you get a plaque rupture and then obstruction of the circulation. Patients with this diagnosis may actually describe sort of abdominal angina where they get increased pain postprandially as the demand for the splanchnic circulation increases and they just can't supply the blood flow that's needed. And that may sort of grumble on for a couple of weeks before it actually presents or comes to a real acute presentation. This still has a high mortality, probably in the 70 to 85% range as well. The third category is the non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia, and this is probably about 20 or 30% of the cases. This doesn't involve so much thrombosis, but more really a hypoperfusion of the gut from uh, low cardiac output states, for instance, like in CHF. Uh, It may be from hypovolemia, or it can even be from just splanchnic vasoconstriction. Think of the uh, sort of ICU patient who's on lots of vasopressors. These tend to be older patients. They tend to be sick patients that are ill with something else to begin with. And the onset of this can be 
quite insidious, and that makes it rather difficult to recognize, especially when they're already being managed for something else. So think of the septic patient in the ICU that gradually develops abdominal pain that's hard to pick up because they're intubated, and then eventually they get bloody diarrhea, and then people realize that that's what their diagnosis is. And because of that, these patients also have a high mortality, probably in the 70 to 80% range. The last category is venous thrombosis, and the real incidence of this isn't actually clear because unlike the other categories, this one has a tendency to often resolve spontaneously. It's likely the least common category, and it's usually caused by some underlying inherited or acquired coagulopathy. You can sort of think of it as the DVT of the gut, and they often present a week or two after the onset with sort of nonspecific abdo pain, they often as well develop diarrhea, and they'll have anorexia, and this is a result of venous congestion of the gut. This has the best outcome of any of the, the four subtypes with a 30-day mortality of probably only around 15%. Okay, so this patient who's got a history of AFib could certainly have an arterial embolus. They've got a history of peripheral vascular disease and MI, so it certainly could be arterial thrombosis. If you decided this this could be mesenteric ischemia, that uh, those two would be up there in terms of uh, the causes. Absolutely. Those would be the top ones probably on my differential for the, the patient you presented. So in order to pick up these diagnoses early, first we have to understand that mesenteric ischemia is actually four different diagnoses. Number one, it could be arterial embolus which is the most common, that usually has a sudden onset of severe pain. Next is the arterial thrombosis in patients with cardiovascular risk factors. With this one, they often have a history of abdominal angina, so don't forget to ask about that. Then there's the low flow state. These patients are usually really sick with some other diagnosis that causes low flow to the gut. And then finally, there's the venous thrombosis, which basically is a DVT of the gut and tends to present less acutely. So let's get on to some of the key clinical clues when you're trying to pick up mesenteric ischemia early on. Dr. Steinhardt, in all your wisdom of 30 plus years of seeing patients with belly pain, what are some of the key clinical clues that can help us diagnose mesenteric ischemia early on? Well, the classic presentation that we're taught is severe abdominal pain, diffuse, out of keeping with a fairly benign clinical exam. As with all classic presentations, they're rare, certainly where I work. And so to clue into this diagnosis, I use a forcing strategy. Every abdominal pain I see, uh, regardless of age or presentation, I ask myself, is this AAA? Number one and number two, is this mesenteric ischemia? Otherwise, I'm going. I'm, I'm going to miss it. As was described, the risk factors for ischemia are play a big role in my suspicion, my pretest probability. Do they have cardiac disease? Are they at risk for uh, clotting? Are they at risk of low flow states? I think a, a good clue that we often don't ask is postprandial ischemia, angina, so to speak, as, as was described. If you could elicit that, it's, uh, you're well on your way to making the diagnosis. So again, classically, it's pain out of proportion, diffuse. They'll, with that, classically, they'll have some 
gut emptying, vomiting, diarrhea in a patient with cardiac risk factors. But very few of these patients actually present classically. So you really got to be careful about asking for the risk factors and force yourself with a cognitive forcing strategy to think about the diagnosis for every single patient that presents with belly pain that's not immediately obvious. It's just like for chest pain. You think of the big killers for chest pain every time you see somebody with chest pain. It, it really should be almost like a, a knee-jerk reaction for, for these abdo pain presentations as well. I think that's a, that's a really good tip. Down with disease and I'm up before the dawn. A thousand barefoot children outside. So those are some of the clinical clues that can help us diagnose this early and clue us into the fact that it might actually be mesenteric ischemia. Let's move on to the lab tests. Dr. Dushensky, what is the role of lab tests in diagnosing mesenteric ischemia? Specifically, can you tell us a little bit about lactate, D-dimer, and a blood gas? So it would be really nice if we had uh, reliable, high-performing lab tests for this particular diagnosis. Unfortunately, most of the abnormalities that we see on these lab tests only start to arise once the ischemic insult has really started to progress more significantly and you're starting to get bowel necrosis. We really don't have any lab test that effectively rules in or rules out the diagnosis with, uh, with a high degree of accuracy. But let's uh, start with the L-lactate. And this is, I think, sort of the reflexive response for many clinicians. Once you think about ischemic gut, you want to send a lactate off and and see what it is. Kudnick uh, et al. actually published a nice systematic review and meta-analysis in academic emergency medicine in 2013, where he looked at the diagnosis of mesenteric ischemia and addressed sort of the uh, uh, performance of the lab tests uh, and how good it was in making this diagnosis. When they looked at the pooled sensitivity for L-lactate, it was about 86%, with fairly wide confidence intervals going down to about 73%, and the specificity was about 44%. They couldn't even actually calculate the ROC curves because there actually wasn't enough studies to be able to do this. Some people, though, actually think that the lactate performs even worse than that when you really look at the studies. They're fairly heterogeneous, and some of the studies don't really apply all that well to the emergency department environment. They'll include post-op patients who have had CV surgery and clamp time on major vessels and so forth, or very sick patients who have acute and surgical abdomens who are all going to the OR even without routine CT scanning. And a lot of the reports of higher sensitivity come from a couple of studies by Evanette where they didn't even define a, a cutoff point for the lactate. And every patient in those studies actually had a surgical belly and a life-threatening diagnosis made at surgery. So how well this actually applies to the undifferentiated ED patients that we're seeing isn't really clear. So the value of the lactate isn't disproven because there really hasn't been a prospective study just in ED patients with suspicion for mesenteric ischemia. But the sum total of the literature suggests that the lactate is probably not very useful and actually performs about as well as a white blood cell count does. Now, 
There was one study by Acosta looking more at eMERGE patients, and in that study, the sensitivity was only about 52%. There were lots of methodologic problems with the study, but again, it does sort of suggest that in the setting of the ED, this may not be a very good study. So it still leaves us with some unanswered questions. Most notably, does the degree of the lactate elevation actually help you? Because the studies didn't really differentiate if there was a difference between a lactate that was two and a half compared to a lactate that was five. And one of the other questions that I think is important is whether serial lactates that are in the normal range actually help you with your clinical picture by decreasing the probability of mesenteric ischemia. There has been some suggestion that if that's the case, that the incidence of mesenteric ischemia is decreased substantially. So with the, with the lactate, would it be fair to say that in those patients that we want to diagnose it early on, the lactate can very well be normal? because they haven't gotten to the point where they've actually caused much ischemia and damage yet. Uh, in those patients that the lactate is super high, most likely it's kind of too late. They're in big, big trouble. You know, we know from studies in, in uh, sepsis and also in studies on belly pain in general that the higher the lactate, the higher the mortality. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think part of the points are don't be falsely reassured by a normal lactate if you're thinking about mesenteric ischemia, especially if they're fairly early in, the, in their presentation. And if the lactate is high, well, be worried. There's probably something bad going on. Okay, so that's the, that's the lactate. Now, D-dimer has caused a lot of controversy and problems with uh, thromboembolic disease and mesenteric ischemia. One of the four diagnoses we were mentioning was venous thrombosis. So it makes sense to think about doing a D-dimer in, in these cases. Can a D-dimer help us in these cases? Well, uh, I'd agree there, there's some physiologic rationale for why D-dimer might be useful in patients with uh, mesenteric ischemia. And there is some evidence in the literature out there. Not a lot. There's five studies, none, none of them all that terribly large. And if you looked at the pooled sensitivity for D-dimer in these cases, it was about 96% with reasonably tight confidence intervals and a specificity of about 40%. So all this translated into a positive likelihood ratio of 1.76, which makes it not terribly useful, but a negative likelihood ratio of 0.12. So that's getting down fairly low, uh, which suggests that a negative D-dimer uh, is associated with a decreased likelihood of the disease may actually change your post-test probability a little bit. But I think we have to remember that in the patients that we're considering this for and who we're working up, they've got lots of reasons to have elevated D-dimers. They tend to be old, which is an independent factor that causes it to be high. They've often got other inflammatory conditions, even if they don't have mesenteric ischemia, they've got something else going on in their belly. A lot of them will have liver disease as well. So the likelihood at baseline that they're going to have an elevated D-dimer is fairly high, which probably artificially elevates the performance of the negative D-dimer in those patients as well. So whether or not it's truly useful in the, in the workup of these patients, if you get one and it's negative, I suppose in the right setting that does decrease your post-test likelihood, but the positive one I'm not sure really helps very much. I'm 
surprised that it actually has a better sensitivity than lactate for mesenteric ischemia because traditionally we've always thought of lactate as the blood test for mesenteric ischemia. So that's interesting. On the other hand, pretty much every patient that you do a D-dimer on who's elderly and has severe abdominal pain, they're probably going to have a positive D-dimer. So the vast majority of the time, it's not going to help you. But I guess that occasional time that you have a perfectly normal D-dimer in a patient where you're thinking, well, it could be mesenteric ischemia, but I have a, a low suspicion. Would it be fair to say that a low suspicion of mesenteric ischemia plus a negative D-dimer and a negative lactate, would that make you comfortable enough to rule out the diagnosis? I think it would certainly decrease my suspicion. It would depend a little bit on the on the clinical circumstances. You're right. If if I had a low clinical suspicion of it in the first place, and they weren't very very early in the presentation, uh, I would certainly factor that into my clinical decision making and deciding what to do with the patient. In some ways, I think we should be considering using this test in the same way that we should be using it in pulmonary embolism. You've got to think before you order it, what am I going to do with a positive result or a negative result when it comes back? And have some idea if that's really going to change anything that you're going to do for the patient that you actually have in front of you. If, if I got a negative result, but I'd still be worried anyways, well, then maybe it doesn't really help me all that much. And if I get a positive result, then I know I'm going to do something about it regardless. What's, what's the point of me actually ordering the test? I agree. Dr. Steinhardt, sometimes there's some other lab tests that can be abnormal in patients with mesenteric ischemia that can lead us astray. Can you just go over some of the other pitfalls in lab tests in the setting of mesenteric ischemia? Well, amylase is, I think, reflexively ordered in anyone with nonspecific abdominal pain. And amylase is not specific to the pancreas. And it could be elevated in any insult, really, to the abdomen. And in mesenteric ischemia, it, it can be elevated in two ways. The ischemic gut has a malabsorption syndrome and ironically resorbs amylase from the, from the gut that's been secreted and so can elevate your blood levels in that regard. As well, in a later presentation of this, you'll, you'll get free fluid eventually from the necrotic bowel swishing into the lesser sac and irritating the pancreas and getting a secondary, shall we say, inflammatory pancreatitis and amylase oozing from that. And so you can get elevated amylase in this condition. It's not going to be sky high, but it's, it's probably can be at a level that it's going to make the clinician think twice about going down the wrong fork. Most of our tests, and amylase included, have a normal range and an abnormal range. It, it is not positive for pancreatitis and negative for pancreatitis. You're never going to get a lab result back saying positive for pancreatitis. You're going to get it back saying abnormal range. And it is up, up to us as clinicians to interpret that value. And, and that goes for amylase. It goes for every test we do. And unfortunately, troponitis also plays into this picture. In your index case you presented, uh, there was the suggestion to draw a troponin. And uh, an elevation in troponin does not equate with acute coronary syndrome. It's likely due, but not always due to 
an insult to the myocardium and myocardial damage. And we've talked of the pathophysiology of mesenteric ischemia and what a strain it eventually will be on the, on the individual and all the pathophysiology and hypotension and, and then cardiovascular collapse that will occur if we don't resuscitate quickly. And that will give you a rise in reflexively in troponin. And again, the clinician has to be very cautious in how they order and interpret these tests and don't get caught calling cardiology and waiting three hours for a consult thinking it's ACS just because your troponin level is abnormal. It can be. Right. I guess an extreme example of that would be someone who has a subarachnoid hemorrhage. They can leak some troponin. Um, of course, in that case, the patient will present with a severe abrupt headache, so you're less likely to be fooled by that. Uh, but because the belly is right next to the chest, that's we, definitely we something of, we can... We know of these cases that have received thrombolysis. They're in a coma. They've got this altered EKG and this elevated troponin, and a well-meaning clinician thrombolyses them, thinking they're encephalopathic from a prior cardiac arrest. Ouch. Okay, so that's a good lesson on how to interpret lab tests. And, and I think one of the points with the troponin as well, Brian mentioned how it's important how we interpret it in context. We know from lots of medical literature that if we in the emergency room stream somebody off to the wrong consultant for the problem that they have, that their mortality rate is significantly higher. So if somebody sees an elevated troponin in the setting of this person with, you know, vague upper abdominal pain, they're old, they've got some history of heart disease and the troponin's high, and they say, oh, well, it must be ACS, off to cardiology, you've now got a significant delay if they actually have mesenteric ischemia to their ultimate diagnosis, and you've probably significantly increased their mortality rate by doing that. So I really agree that the the interpretation of the lab tests is really critical. It's not just normal or abnormal, and we really have to remember that a lot of these tests are not specific necessarily for the things that we usually associate them for. Absolutely. In terms of the blood gas, uh, venous blood gases are sometimes done in these patients as well. They're often sick. Uh, it is true that uh, acidosis is a univariate marker for mortality in mesenteric ischemia patients. So uh, I think what you can say about venous blood gases is that if you've got acute abdo pain and a meta metabolic acidosis, that mesenteric ischemia has to be on your differential until proven otherwise. Let's move on to imaging. Now, we're going to talk later about the value of x-rays in abdominal pain in general, but I just have to ask at this point, Dr. Steinhardt, is there any value in abdominal x-rays in working up the patient suspected of having mesenteric ischemia? Well, I think in general, anytime you think a patient needs advanced imaging like ultrasound or CT, then you have to ask yourself, why would you add radiation to this individual if it's not going to give you a definitive diagnosis? 
That said, in the real world, there are often significant delays in getting these imaging, not just minutes, but hours, uh, sometimes many hours. And certainly in mesenteric ischemia, early on, you're not going to see much except for an ileus. The, the problem with that is many clinicians, unfortunately, will interpret an ileus as a, as a, as a mechanical bowel obstruction. And then, as David has alluded to, there you go off the wrong fork, and then you've lost time with resuscitation and lost time with your advanced imaging because you may even cancel an urgent CT if you've come up with this wrong diagnosis. So there's a caveat with looking at abdominal x-rays early on. Later on in the presentation, as was mentioned, you're, you're going to get bowel destruction. And you even on a plain film, you might see evidence of edema in the bowel wall, uh, so-called thumbprinting and uh, pneumatosis intestinalis, so air seeping into the wall, very dramatic findings on x-ray it can help you if there's a delay in getting definitive imaging, in this case, a CT, but you're still going to get the CT. Would it be fair to say that in a patient who's too sick to go to the CT scanner, that doing a portable flat plate might be reasonable? And if you see these signs, then you'd suspect the diagnosis? Yes, I do practice that. I, I should say it's not so often that I do see this, these signs of mesenteric ischemia, but more often I am taken aback at how often I see volvulus, be it sigmoid, cecal, even gastric volvulus in these older, sedentary, perhaps institutionalized, perhaps cognitively impaired patients who come in sick and at the bedside you really don't know what's going on. I do at times just do a flat plate and I'm often surprised. Hmm. There's so many more questions I want to ask about x-rays, but we'll leave it until later. Let's continue on with mesenteric ischemia. Dr. Steiner, you had mentioned the importance of speaking to your radiologist before ordering a CT for mesenteric ischemia to make sure that you're getting the right kind of study. Dr. Dushansky, could you just go over for us how you would communicate with the radiologist to tell them what you're looking for when you're suspecting mesenteric ischemia? So this is a, an important point, and, and it goes back to your initial question where we sort of broke down mesenteric ischemia into four different diseases. It certainly has an effect in how you want to set up and protocol the CT to maximize your likelihood of seeing the thing that you're looking for. So a CT venogram is going to be the best thing looking for venous thrombosis, while a CT angiogram is going to be the best thing for looking at arterial emboli. I think you really need to talk to your radiologist locally because there's a big variability in the way that CTs get done. Sometimes the eMERGE physician has to say specifically what they want and the DI department will just go off and do it. In other places like in mine, the radiologists actually read the CT order and then they make a decision about the protocoling depending on what the clinical information was. And if they're not sure, they're going to call and actually ask the ordering physician what is it you're really worried about. So in our place, if mesenteric ischemia is actually the main concern, they'll actually set up the study to do a triple-phase protocol. So they'll do a first pass with no contrast at all. They'll do a second pass with contrast in the arterial phase. And then they'll do a third pass with contrast in the venous phase to actually maximize the sensitivity. 
Now, the downside to that, of course, is that they get three passes through the abdomen. It's a lot more radiation, but it does maximize the sensitivity for picking up the changes, which may be subtle, associated with mesenteric ischemia. Given that a lot of the patients that we're doing this in are older patients anyways, the radiation concern probably is not all that significant when you compare it to the significance of the diagnosis that we're looking for. So in this case, you get back the report from the CT that says bowel wall thickening and slight dilatation with possible intramural air. Dr. Deshensky, could you just go over for us what the differential diagnosis is for these findings. You know, sometimes the radiologist will say what the differential diagnosis is, and sometimes the differential diagnosis is so long that you're just thinking that the radiologist is just trying to cover all the bases and they don't really know what's going on. What is the potential pitfall in reading these reports we sometimes get like this? So there is a, a fairly broad differential for these sort of non-specific findings that you'll get like bowel wall thickening and dilatation. You can see this in patients who have uh, inflammatory bowel disease and patients who have infectious colitis and patients who have uh, C. diff and patients who have other inflammatory causes uh, of, uh, of colitis or, or bowel problems. And so they don't necessarily point you towards one specific diagnosis. Mesenteric ischemia on CT usually shows some secondary signs that something's wrong, even if you aren't directly seeing clot in the vessel. But often they are these nonspecific type of findings. You may see some things just like ascites or mesenteric edema or bowel wall thickening in the early stages of mesenteric ischemia. The later findings where you're getting pneumatosis and pneumoperitoneum and intravascular gas, those are much more advanced along and, and those absolutely point you towards a, a more serious cause. What happens uh, not uncommonly, though, is you get a CT that wasn't actually protocoled for mesenteric ischemia, and you get just these nonspecific findings. If you see this and it doesn't really give you a diagnosis or it doesn't really fit with your clinical picture, it should prompt you to reconsider the diagnosis of mesenteric ischemia. And sometimes you may actually require repeat imaging, reprotocoling it to look for the mesenteric ischemia changes specifically. The pitfall, I suppose, with this is that if you don't consider mesenteric ischemia with these findings, you may dis misdiagnose it as something else, as we've already uh, talked about before, and then you end up with a, a delay in treatment or the wrong treatment for the patient. Okay, so it's really tricky. I mean, our goal is to pick up mesenteric ischemia as early as possible to decrease mortality, yet the CT findings are much more nonspecific in the early phase uh, so again, we have to really have a heightened suspicion for this diagnosis and be careful of labeling it as a nonspecific colitis or an infectious colitis, which would mandate a totally different treatment and again, delay the diagnosis. So if we're looking at uh, CT for diagnosis of mesenteric ischemia, Kudnik, who did the systematic review and meta-analysis that I mentioned before, also looked at uh, pooled data for the sensitivity and specificity of CT for this diagnosis. 
he found that the sensitivity was about 94% with a lower confidence interval of 90% and a specificity of about 95%. Uh, that gave a positive likelihood ratio for CT of 17.5 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.09. So just by looking at those numbers, it looks like it actually performs quite well. But it's important to keep in mind that this depends on a number of factors. How far along in the course of the disease the patient is, which of the four subsets of this disease they actually have, who's reading the CT, because these are quite operator-dependent. Brian mentioned that you know looking for the inferior mesenteric artery changes is quite challenging. And whether or not you actually ordered the right CT, the studies included in this were all protocols specifically looking for mesenteric ischemia. And it may have some effect based on what the technology is that you're using. Are you using a 64-slice CT scanner with 3D reformats, or are you using an older 16-slice CT? Those factors may affect how sensitive the CT uh, actually is for it. But overall, CT is the de facto imaging choice for this condition. Okay, so if you do suspect mesenteric ischemia and you ask for the protocol and they look at the arterial phase and the venous phase and you have an experienced radiologist, then the sensitivity and specificity are really good. However, if you've got a patient with undifferentiated abdominal pain, you're not sure what's going on and you just order a contrast CT, the radiologist isn't looking specifically for mesenteric ischemia, that's a situation where the sensitivity is, is decreased significantly. Um, and again, especially if that patient is early on in their disease, it, it might be missed. Yeah, don't assume you're up at the high 90s like the numbers that I just said if you don't meet those conditions that I mentioned. So here I'd like to review the pearls and pitfalls in the diagnosis of mesenteric ischemia. First, the pearls. In order to even have the diagnosis of mesenteric ischemia on your radar in general, it's wise to employ a cognitive forcing strategy. That is, whenever a patient presents with abdominal pain that does not have an immediately obvious diagnosis, you should force yourself to think about the possibility of mesenteric ischemia, as well as things like AAA, because these are infrequent diagnoses that are often missed initially. For patients with chest pain, we're used to thinking of aortic dissection, PE, and esophageal rupture, even though they're infrequent diagnoses, and so we should have a similar cognitive forcing strategy when it comes to belly pain. For the next pearl, I'd also like to make an analogy to chest pain. When we see patients with chest pain, we ask about cardiovascular and thromboembolic risk factors routinely. We often don't think specifically of asking for cardiovascular and thromboembolic risk factors in patients who present with belly pain, but we really should, because the combination of diffuse severe belly pain and cardiovascular or thromboembolic risk factors alone should raise the suspicion for mesenteric ischemia. The next pearl is in terms of blood work. If you have a patient with belly pain plus metabolic acidosis, this should raise the suspicion for mesenteric ischemia. And a low pretest probability for mesenteric ischemia plus a normal D-dimer makes the diagnosis much less likely, although it doesn't rule it out. So those are some of the key pearls for mesenteric ischemia. What about the pitfalls? Well, there's a whole bunch of those. While the classic presentation of mesenteric ischemia is acute, diffuse, severe abdominal pain out of proportion to the physical exam with gastric emptying, many patients will have a subacute onset, and many patients will not have gastric emptying. 
so make sure you consider the diagnosis even in patients who present atypically. Next, when it comes to blood work, there's three major pitfalls to look out for. First, relying on a normal lactate to rule out the diagnosis is a pitfall because the sensitivity has been shown to be as low as about 50% depending on the stage of the disease and the setting that the study was done in. While lactate may increase or decrease your suspicion for the diagnosis, it cannot rule it in or out. The second pitfall is assuming that an elevated amylase is due to pancreatitis. Many patients with mesenteric ischemia will have an elevated amylase, and if you assume that the primary diagnosis is pancreatitis, you'll delay treatment and increase morbidity and mortality. The other blood test to watch out for is troponin. Many patients with mesenteric ischemia will have an elevated troponin, and most of them will have cardiovascular risk factors, and some of them will have upper abdominal pain, so this can mimic the picture for an ACS. If you diagnose ACS instead of mesenteric ischemia and get the patient admitted to cardiology and miss the mesenteric ischemia, again, you'll delay treatment, which has been shown to increase morbidity and mortality. Finally, the last pitfall in the diagnosis is relying on a plain CT or contrast CT that is not specifically protocolized for mesenteric ischemia to try and rule out the disease. Remember that if you order a triple-phase CT specifically looking for mesenteric ischemia, the sensitivity and specificity are in the 90s, but a plain CT or generic CT with contrast will have a substantially lower accuracy and may miss the diagnosis. So if you get back a plain CT that has nonspecific findings of bowel wall edema, for example, bowel wall ischemia has a wide differential diagnosis, which includes mesenteric ischemia. So if you get nonspecific bowel wall findings, and you think that the patient could possibly have mesenteric ischemia, go back, reassess the patient with this in mind, and consider ordering a triple phase CT. So we've talked about the clinical diagnosis, we've talked about laboratory tests, we've talked about imaging. Let's say you've clinched the diagnosis, you're sure this patient has mesenteric ischemia. Can you just give us a quick review, Dr. Steinhardt, of your initial ED management for patients with a diagnosis of mesenteric ischemia? So I think regardless of the stage that they present, you want to rehydrate, you want to flood them with fluid. It's very impressive to see ischemic gut, if not gangrenous ischemic gut, and the massive third space loss, not to mention any secondary bleeding that can occur. So these people are hypoperfused right from the start, and and I would get very, very aggressive with intravenous fluid resuscitation. It's controversial whether you want to add antibiotics, as David had alluded to. Some of these patients are septic before they get into this condition. And so if you have a high lactate and you have a shocky individual, it may be the gut. It may be something that precipitated the ischemic gut. So look elsewhere as well for a a cause and then give a specific antibiotic for that cause. Otherwise, most people will give antibiotics empirically. And I think uh, you want to get your surgeons involved very quickly. 
it's their domain, whether they need to revascularize or reset gut in order to salvage this patient. I think you want to get them involved quickly. And then comes the controversial point of, do you anticoagulate or not? So if you think it's embolus and you think they're not going for surgery imminently, then you would want to anticoagulate, assuming they're not bleeding secondarily. And just one last point about the treatment in mesenteric ischemia. Let's say your patient is in shock with a diagnosis of mesenteric ischemia and you're having to reach for pressors. I mean, this is a really sick patient. The mortality is going to be crazy high, but you're throwing the typewriter at them. What would be your presser of choice, Dr. Dushansky? Well, as you mentioned, ideally, you'd really rather not use pressors at all, given that they're fairly strongly associated with causing mesenteric ischemia in the first place. But the ones that you're going to pick in the patient where you don't have any choice and you've sort of maximally uh, fluid optimized them and so forth are going to be the ones that have the least effect on the splanchnic circulation. So dibutamine and milrinone are probably the preferred ones in that setting because they've got less effect on mesenteric perfusion and may actually have a dilatory effect compared with the other vasopressors. The ones that you want to avoid the most would be epi and phenylephrine because they're sort of the most troublesome for the mesenteric circulation. Now, I think if you're going to give a little squirt of phenylephrine before you're intubating this really, really sick patient, I don't think that that's uh, likely to be a, a real significant factor in their overall prognosis. But you don't want that person on the phenylephrine drip or the epi drip in order to try and support them. So because of all that third spacing, remember to give fluids, fluids, fluids. Consider giving antibiotics and even anticoagulants if the patients aren't going straight to the OR and aren't bleeding. And avoid pressors when you can. If you have to use a presser, use dobutamine or milrinone. Before we leave mesenteric ischemia, Dr. Steinhardt is just going to give us a little bit of his own experience with this disease. I just remember walking into the OR, not into the OR suite, but into the <clears throat> OR ward in the middle of the night to see the laparotomy on, on a case and just opening the, the door to the OR suite, the smell almost knocked me down. And uh, this is with a mask on and going in to see this gangrenous small bowel and ascending colon. It's a very dramatic lesion, very dramatic pathology, a huge physiologic insult to the patient. And and you could see why the mortality is so high, and you would rather avoid that situation by getting on top of this presentation earlier rather than later. So that's it for mesenteric ischemia. Next up, we're going to be talking about post-op ERCP abdominal pain and pancreatitis. New case. A 37-year-old, otherwise healthy man comes in three days post-ERCP for a common bile duct stone with increasing non-radiating 9 out of 10 upper abdominal pain despite taking Percocet. He complains of severe nausea, occasional vomiting, and is unable to tolerate PO fluids. He denies fever, chest pain, shortness of breath, diarrhea, melina, or urinary symptoms. He hasn't had a bowel movement since the ERCP was done. On exam, he's tender in the epigastrium and right upper quadrant with no peritoneal signs. 
His vital signs are normal. We see these patients quite often where they're post-op and they've got some belly pain and it's often difficult to distinguish whether it's just their pain from the surgery or whether they have something new. Dr. Steinhardt, in this particular case of a post-ERCP patient with belly pain, why do we need to worry when a patient who's post-ERCP comes in like this? What would your differential diagnosis be and how would you work this patient up? You want to ask this patient, first of all, is this pain like the pain you had prior to the ERCP? And that can decrease your pretest probability for a complication. But of course, paramount in, in this presentation is ruling out iatrogenic problems such as pancreatitis, first of all. So it's ironic that this procedure sometimes is for dealing with pancreatitis and fishing out stones from the common bile duct slash pancreatic duct area. And it can induce pancreatitis both from mechanical means with a probe in there and or the irritation from the dye that they use. And, and there's a significant morbidity and mortality that can be uh, associated just from the pancreatitis as a result of this procedure. So you want to get on the ball with that. They do cause routinely a hyperamylasemia just from occluding the pancreatic duct as part of their process, just like you will always get a rise in troponin in someone doing coronary angioplasty just from the mechanics of the procedure. But this should wash out and should not be associated with increased symptoms. So the pancreatitis from this iatrogenic cause usually starts within 24 hours and the patient may present anywhere along this continuum. And so you have to look at that. The second rule out is infection because the probe transits through the duodenum and then is slipped into the pancreatic duct. It can induce bacteria into the system and, and you could get an ascending cholangitis just from from the procedure. And then thirdly is perforation anywhere along the GI tract, but specifically if they were doing a sphincter audi lysis, shall we say, to increase any stricture that might have occurred, this can result in bleeding and perforation, typically retroperitoneal because the that area, the duodenum, is retroperitoneal, so you cannot expect free intraperitoneal air from this. So these are the three big complications that you want to get on top of very quickly. You had mentioned that you can get an elevated amylase or lipase just from the ERCP itself, and often the patients had the ERCP because they had pancreatitis in the first place, and they had elevated lipase or amylase, which takes some time to come down. Now you're three days post-op, and you've got an, an elevated amylase. Besides the clinical things that you just mentioned, how do we interpret the amylase and the lipase in this kind of setting? Any spike in amylase should wash out, or certainly begin to wash out by three days. Lipase lasts longer in the system. Both, by the way, are affected by creatinine clearance. And so decreased GFR azotemia will prolong this elevation in, in the bloodstream. So by three days, you expect whatever 
premorbid amylase they had and at the time of the procedure to have started to wash out. So you compare with what you might have had previously and uh, see if it's going up as opposed to falling. So likewise, as, as with de novo pancreatitis, one expects a amylase and lipase three times the upper threshold, the upper level to consider a diagnosis of pancreatitis, and this would be paramount in such a setting. So the definition of post-ERCP pancreatitis would be worsening abdominal pain with a serum amylase or lipase at least three times the upper limit of normal, which has been at least 24 hours since the ERCP. So while patients often have some abdominal pain after ERCP and often have somewhat of a rise of their amylase or lipase, if their pain is increasing or if their pancreatic enzymes are more than three times the upper limit of normal, these patients should be considered for full-blown pancreatitis and need to be managed as such. You also need to think about the possibility of perforation and bleeding as well as infection. So the bottom line is be wary of the post-ERCP patient because these complications are not uncommon and they do carry a high mortality rate. So in this case, it's a post-ERCP pancreatitis. That's the third most common cause of pancreatitis after alcoholic and gallstone pancreatitis. Let's talk about pancreatitis in general now. Dr. Steinhardt, can you review for us some of your clinical pearls that help you diagnose pancreatitis in general? Because these are often associated with gallstones, then a history of the patient having gallstones raises your impression for gallstone pancreatitis. Likewise, history of alcohol abuse raises your impressions for the latter, for alcohol pancreatitis. These people have severe pain, typically in the epigastrium, but depending on where in the pancreas the the lesion is, it might be also right upper quadrant or left upper quadrant. It often radiates into the back and, and classically is made better by sitting up and we sometimes see patients who will not lie down with this abdominal pain because it gets so bad. And ironically, you can't get an adequate exam until you've given enough analgesia because they will not go supine to let you feel the abdomen. So there's a big hint that, mm. that pancreatitis is going on. And these So it's, patients, like, it's like the pericarditis of the belly. Exactly. And these people um, often have profuse vomiting. They may be jaundiced. They may have abdominal distension. They may have an ileus, and so vague tenderness elsewhere. And those are some hints at the bedside that you're dealing with a primary pancreatitis. Dr. Dushensky, we often see patients with pancreatitis who don't look that ill. And there's been some suggestions in the literature that clinical judgment might underestimate the severity of acute pancreatitis. How can we predict how sick a patient with pancreatitis is? There's the Apache 2 score, there's the Ranson criteria that we all read about promptly and forgot in medical school. Uh, there's the new BISAP score. Can you tell us which, if any of these scores, we should be using to help risk stratify and prognosticate our pancreatitis patients? 
Yeah, so you know, scoring systems for things in medicine are are always uh, very popular, and uh, we'd love to have ones that really help us out in the emergency department. Uh, depending on the point at which we see the patient with pancreatitis, it can be a little bit difficult to tell, as you as you said, that whether or not they're likely to have a more complicated course, or whether or not they're likely to do well with the sort of minimal supportive therapy. The scoring systems that you mentioned certainly are used in the setting of pancreatitis. Apache 2, most of us remember usually from our residencies when we were doing ICU rotations and you'd calculate Apache 2 scores. I can't remember the last time I actually calculated one in the emergency department. And it's really not designed for the emergency department. It it was actually uh, derived to be an estimator of ICU mortality. And it actually looks at a variety of parameters over the first 24 hours in the ICU and looks and takes the worst values out of those. It's rather cumbersome to use. There's 15 elements in it, uh, although you can now get a, a free online calculator for it if you go to MD Calc that makes things a little bit easier. But it really doesn't apply all that well, I don't think, to the emergency department setting. Uh, Ranson score uh, that you mentioned as well it does have utility in predicting a complicated course for patients with pancreatitis, but it actually requires a full 48 hours of assessment in order to really calculate. So again, it's it's not really applicable in the ED setting. There's the CT severity index. So once you've gotten to the point where you're actually uh, doing imaging on the patients and, and you've done a CT scan, And that one has shown some utility in quantifying how sick the patient is and how complicated their course is likely to be based on the pancreatic necrosis seen on the CT scan. But it's got limitations as well. Certainly for us in the ED, not everybody's going to get a CT scan. And it doesn't really even reflect uh, systemic inflammatory responses that can be useful in predicting complicated courses. The BISAP or BISAP score is one that has generated some interest uh, in that it seems to be somewhat more applicable in the emergency department setting. It stands for Bedside Index of Severity for Acute Pancreatitis. And this is a linear regression logistic analysis that was uh, derived in uh, uh, many thousands of patients and then sort of validated in another data set. And it's been shown that it's got performance that's similar to the Apache and Ranson's and CT severity index, but it's more easy to use and a little bit more applicable to the ED. Theoretically, it's a five-point score, but it isn't actually. Uh, You get a point for BUN of greater than 25, altered level of consciousness defined as a GCS of less than 15. So again, there you actually have to do a little calculation in order to get that value. Two or more SERS criteria, which of course has multiple variables in it, so you've got to do a little bit more calculation to figure out if they qualify. And an age greater than 60 or the presence of a pleural effusion. By adding that up, you get a score that ranges from 0 to 5. And this has been prospectively validated by Singh in uh, uh, the American Journal of Gastroenterology back in 2009 in a a cohort of about 339 patients. And they showed that if you had a score of zero, that your mortality rate was essentially zero. If you had a score of less than three, your mortality was still low. It was probably around 2%. And if it was greater than three, the mortality rate really took off and, and in some cases was as high as 50%. 
Now, there's been another paper actually published by Papa Cristo in American Journal of Gastroenterology in 2010 that compared the BISAP, the Ransons, the Apache 2, and the CT severity index. And uh, it showed uh, lower mortality rates than the previous study that I mentioned. Uh, but that it did perform similarly to the uh, the other scoring systems. So overall, uh, the BICEP score, I think, has moderate utility in telling us which patients may need closer observation and intensive care monitoring based on the initial evaluation. But it's not really clear that it helps you decide who may be able to go home from the emergency department or even if it's actually better than bedside gestalt decision-making. Okay, so more studies required. And let's not forget the, the level of amylase and or lipase used in no way, shape, or form correlates with the severity of the pancreatitis. Right. Yeah, it's interesting to see that amylase and lipase aren't even in the BICEP score at all. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah. not relevant. So let's review here the BICEP score. It stands for Bedside Index of Severity, and it's for trying to predict prognosis in pancreatitis. It performs similar to the Apache, Ranson, and CT severity index, but it's easier to use and more applicable to the ED. You get one point for each of the following. A BUN of greater than 25, altered level of consciousness, SIRS, age greater than 60, and pleural effusion. A score of 0 gives you a 0% mortality, and a score of 5 will give you about a 22% mortality. Notice that the BICEP score, nor any of the other scores, have amylase or lipase in them, because the degree and elevation of amylase or lipase do not correlate with the severity of disease. Next, Dr. Steinhardt's going to give us some clues about how to determine the cause of pancreatitis when it's not immediately obvious from the history. Dr. Steinhardt, we had been talking about some of the clinical clues for pancreatitis. Besides the obvious history of alcohol abuse or a known history of gallstones to help you decide whether a patient has gallstone pancreatitis or alcoholic pancreatitis, are there any other bedside clues clinically or in the blood work that would help you decide what the cause of the pancreatitis is? Yes, I think sometimes you can make that bedside uh, determination. So alcoholic pancreatitis, more gradual onset, more diffuse pain in versus gallbladder pancreatitis, so mainly abrupt onset, that stone gets stuck in the distal pancreatic duct and causes a very quick reaction, and so more abrupt uh, pain, more right upper quadrant than, than diffuse. And then on labs, uh, certainly a rise in ALT is highly suggestive of a gallbladder origin versus alcoholic. And then classically, uh, the lipase to amylase ratio has been used. So again, they, they must be elevated above three times the upper threshold of normal. And if the lipase is more than three times that of the amylase, This uh, has been shown with some validity to suggest alcohol as, as being the origin. So while the ALT is usually elevated in patients with gallstone pancreatitis, alcoholics that have elevated liver enzymes will usually have an AST that's higher than the ALT, usually in about a 2 to 1 ratio. 
In addition, patients with alcoholic liver disease will usually have an elevated GGT. Okay, so that's the blood tests. Let's talk a little bit about imaging. It's unclear when you have a patient with pancreatitis sometimes whether it's gallstone or alcoholic, despite Dr. Steinhardt's tips on, on how to distinguish the two. And often the specialists suggest that all patients have to have an ultrasound to find out whether they have gallstones or not in order to know whether this patient needs an ERCP or not. Dr. Deshansky, do all patients with a first attack of pancreatitis need an ultrasound to rule out gallstones? Yes. I think that's sort of my short answer to this. Now, of course, in real life, there's a, a little bit more in the way of subtleties for, for how you're going to make your decisions. But uh, doing the ultrasound is important, I think, especially with the first time that the patient's presenting with the, this disease, because you're making a decision point between performing some sort of intervention to try and resolve the underlying cause, a gallstone that may be sitting there causing their problem, or treating supportively, which is really the mainstay of management of pancreatitis with very few exceptions. If there's a stone stuck, supportive treatment by itself probably isn't going to allow things to resolve and may actually uh, provide an opportunity for things to deteriorate. So I I think that ultrasound uh, is reasonable as an investigation, especially for first attack of pancreatitis. So so that said, uncommonly, but, but certainly I see it, where a patient comes in with upper abdominal pain, severe, and your amylase or lipase is radically elevated, and you and you make the diagnosis of pancreatitis, and you initiate resuscitation, and you start getting into imaging, likely ultrasound, and then lo and behold, the the nurse comes back and says your patient wants to go home, their pain's gone, and and so this is classic gallstone pancreatitis and the stone has moved floated out of the sphincter of Adi and is no longer obstructing and though I agree that these patients need an expectant ultrasound I'm likely to send these people home with you know precautions and provisors provisos everything else being equal and getting and getting them set up for a timely ultrasound and a GI consult but their pain's gone it's a blessing for them, and I think uh, we should not be aggressive in these situations. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. You know, treat treat the patient, not the test results. So, yeah, okay, their amylase is uh, twelve hundred, but as Brian said, if their symptoms have gone and they feel fine, you're right. the The rest of the the workup can proceed a little bit more electively. Okay, let's go a little bit back to amylase and lipase. We've mentioned already that you can have false elevations of both amylase and lipase in patients with renal failure when we were talking about mesenteric ischemia. We mentioned also that amylase has a shorter half-life than lipase so that the patient presents greater than 24 hours after their onset, the amylase is less reliable and can miss the pancreatitis. Dr. Deshensky, could you just Give us an idea of generally what the sensitivity and specificities are for lipase and amylase for pancreatitis. 
So there's general agreement in, in the literature that lipase is probably a better performer than amylase uh, for the diagnosis of pancreatitis. And uh, in reviews of uh, the lab data on this, lipase has a sensitivity quoted as being around 90% compared to amylase at uh, just under 80%. So it is a, a real difference. The specificity between the two tests is actually very similar. They're both about 93% uh, based on the the quotes in the literature. And uh, as mentioned uh, before, degree of elevation of the enzymes really doesn't correlate uh, strongly with the, the severity of the disease. So that's amylase and lipase, and we've talked about ultrasound. Which patients with pancreatitis need a CT scan in the emergency department? So there's a thorny issue in our department, especially with the consultation staff. They all want a CT. I don't think it's necessary. As was described, CT is good only to show devitalized tissue uh, and how severe the pancreatitis is. And, and really, this only becomes evident about 48 hours into the process. So if this patient presents beforehand to your emergency department, for that reason, to get a CT is not worthwhile. You're not going to get that imaging. The process has not gone on long enough if uh, one is concerned about another process causing hyperamylasemia that may benefit from a CT, okay, then obviously go with, go with the CT. If the patient has, in your estimation, fulminant pancreatitis, as we talked about, necrotic tissue going on, has SIRS or ARDS and all the other uh, multi-system complications that a severe pancreatitis can cause, then I would go on likely to CT, knowing full well that it is not the test of choice to rule in or out gallbladder and gallstones as the etiology for the pancreatitis. CT, unless these stones are calcified, will not pick, pick up the stones. The caveat, of course, is we all learned about the sentinel loop as a sign on plain films for pancreatitis. I'm not suggesting we do plain films, but but it gives you the impression of the massive ileus that can occur in a fulminant pancreatitis, and your ultrasound may be very, very hard to, to get that appropriate image of the biliary tree with all that gas and shadowing. So it's a tough bind. Mm-hmm. Okay, so suffice to say that there's some patients who don't need any imaging if they have a classic story for gallstone pancreatitis and then their pain goes away completely. You might be sending those patients home without imaging. If a patient presents with a first-time pancreatitis and it's not immediately obvious based on the, the history what, what's causing it, those patients need an ultrasound first. Uh, it's the rare patient that requires a CT for pancreatitis I guess the first thing is if you're not sure about the diagnosis and you're looking for other diagnoses, you might want to do a CT. And if the patient presents within 24 to 48 hours, you're very unlikely to find much on CT except a confirmation of the pancreatitis itself. But if the patient is really sick, especially if they've presented more than 48 hours after the onset, then that's when you might want to consider doing a CT because that's, that'll help the surgeons decide whether they need to take out devitalized tissue. Before we wrap up pancreatitis, 
Dr. Steinhardt's just going to give us another one of his great stories. So this is a bad news. This, this disease can be bad, bad news. And my poor brother was diagnosed with pancreatitis, and his Ransom score was off the page. And at one point, he had seven drainage tubes coming out of his abdomen and retroperitoneal space, including an ileostomy from a ruptured necrotic bowel adjacent to the pancreas. And then he went into renal failure from secondary bilateral stones as a result of malabsorption syndrome from his pancreatitis. And then he was diagnosed as in alcohol withdrawal syndrome because he got into ICU psychosis uh, and he's never touched a drop of alcohol in his life. And so this is a nasty, nasty disease and you want to make the diagnosis in the emergency department. Again, massive third space loss in some individuals and you want to get very aggressive with fluid resuscitation. These people often have respiratory symptoms. In fact, there are five different ways that they could get into respiratory failure. And I would not let that stop me in fluid resuscitation. Just like in sepsis, you want to flood the system with fluid, even if you have to intubate and support the patient's uh, breathing in that regard. Yeah, I think, I think we, we have to be aware there, there's a big spectrum of disease severity associated with this. And I, I think sometimes we get a little bit complacent with pancreatitis, at least in the, in the setting that I work in, sort of a, the downtown urban center. We see a lot of patients with alcoholic pancreatitis, and it's relatively mild, and they, they tend to settle down fairly quickly with conservative treatment. We need to remember that this is sometimes a true life-threatening diagnosis that puts people in the ICU for long periods of time. They can be very complicated to manage multiple surgical procedures with a very significant morbidity associated with it. So don't be complacent with this, and think about uh, the things that uh, are markers for increasing severity of disease. So be very careful with the elderly, as we are in most abdominal pain diagnoses. Alcoholics, while we tend to be complacent, can develop much more uh, significant disease. Patients uh, with certain characteristics are actually at higher risk for uh, more complicated courses. The obese patients, uh, the patients who are immune compromised to begin with, uh, are at much higher risk for complications as well. And the patients who present with a more fulminant sort of presentation, so they're perfectly fine and they get sick fairly quickly and they've got high surge criteria at the time that they're initially presenting, you, you want to really be careful with those patients. As well, there's been some evidence in the literature that shows if you have renal failure, high creatinine, high BUN at presentation, that that may be a marker for a more complicated course as well. And you should look at those patients much more seriously. So here are the take-home points from this chapter. First, be wary of the post-ERCP abdopain patient. There are four diagnoses to consider. Pancreatitis, perforation, bleeding, and infection. The definition of post-ERCP pancreatitis is worsening abdominal pain more than 24 hours post-ERCP plus an amylase or lipase that's more than three times the upper limit of normal. Some clinical clues for pancreatitis beyond a history of gallstones or alcohol abuse are first, belly pain that's worse with lying down and somewhat improved with sitting up, 
just like pericarditis. So if the abdopain patient is standing or sitting up and simply refuses to lie down for an abdominal examination, think pancreatitis. In terms of sorting out the causes of pancreatitis beyond the obvious history of alcohol abuse, gallstones, or post-DRCP, a gradual onset of more diffuse abdominal pain is more consistent with alcoholic pancreatitis as opposed to a more abrupt onset and localized pain of gallstone pancreatitis. As far as liver enzymes go, alcoholic pancreatitis is more likely to show an elevation of AST that's at least two times the ALT, whereas in gallstone pancreatitis, the ALT will be more elevated. Whereas in gallstone pancreatitis, the ALT will be more elevated. Next is predicting which patients with pancreatitis will require close monitoring, more aggressive treatment, and perhaps an ICU admission. The BICEP store does as good a job at predicting mortality as the Ranson or Apache 2 or CT severity score and is the only one that's applicable to the ED. An elevated BUN, age over 60, presence of pleural effusion, SERS criteria, and altered level of consciousness can help predict which patients will die. Remember that the degree of elevation of pancreatic enzymes does not correlate with the severity of disease. What about imaging for pancreatitis? Patients with first-time pancreatitis usually require an ultrasound to look for gallstones. CT is often not required in the ED as it's most useful after 48 hours of illness. You might want to get a CT if you're unsure of the diagnosis or if you suspect that the patient has fulminant, severe pancreatitis. Finally, if there's one thing you give these patients in the ED, it should be lots of fluid. Most of these patients suffer from massive third spacing and need to be flooded. So that wraps it up for part one of episode 42 in abdominal pain. If you have any thoughts or comments about this episode, please do tweet us. We're at EM cases. That's at capital E, capital M, capital C, A, S, E, S. We're also on Google Plus and Facebook. You can find us there. In part two of the episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Deshensky and Dr. Steinhardt about appendicitis, diverticulitis, and cholecystitis. So until next time, take it easy.